In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, on God, Amen. Tonight, our Bible study from Psalm 91. Each psalm actually has a title. The title actually serves as introduction to the psalm. But some psalms don't have title. That's why we don't know who is the author, or on what occasion it was written. Psalm 91 has no title in Hebrew, nor can it be determined on what occasion or by whom it was composed. But according to the Jewish commentators, they said that when the author name is not mentioned, then the psalm is ascribed to the author of the previous psalm. So, the previous psalm, Psalm 90, is written by Moses the prophet. So, according to this principle, this psalm is written by Moses also. And the reason some claim that it is written by Moses, it shares some of the themes like Psalm 90. But others claim it is written by David because it shares some of the themes of Psalm 27 and Psalm 31, which were written by David. On the other side, the Septuagint translation, which is a Greek version of the Old Testament, attribute this psalm to David. So in Hebrew, there is no title. But in the Septuagint, the title written by David. But again, whether David is the author or not, it is in question. Because there are no internal evidence by which we can ascertain when or by whom it was written. But as in Psalm 90, which was written by Moses, there are some similarities with the language of Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is written, the song in Deuteronomy that's written by Moses. That's why most of the commentators said this psalm is written by Moses. This psalm actually is very general in its application, may have been composed with no particular reference, not in a special occasion or any event, but it is considered a psalm of protection. This psalm expresses confidence that God will protect the righteous from plagues, demons, wild animals, while allowing the wicked to perish. Every godly man is always safe under the divine protection. And some described it as the most reassuring, uplifting, promising, and most incomparable psalm in the whole book of Psalms. Some of the fathers say it is most suitable to pray it at compliant at the end of the day as a defense against the snares of the night and the various temptations of the evil. But the church prays this psalm in the, the sixth hour, which is 12 noon. Because in verse 6 it says, Nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. That's why we pray it at noon, 12 p.m., which is the sixth hour in the Agbayim. 
Saint Athanasius wrote about this psalm to Marcellinus and he said, If you desire to establish yourself and others in devotion, to know what confidence is it to be reposed in God, and what makes the mind fearless, you will praise God by reciting the 90th Psalm. In Septuagint, it's Psalm 90, but in Hebrew, it's Psalm 91. Prophetically and spiritually, the fathers called this psalm the victory of the Messiah, because in this psalm, how the devil is defeated. So that's the victory of Messiah, and also the victory of everyone that's perfected by the Messiah. St. Augustine says about this psalm, this psalm is that from which the devil dared to tempt our Lord Jesus Christ. In the second temptation, the devil actually caught this psalm when he tried to convince the Lord Jesus Christ to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple. So he caught Psalm 91. St. Augustine continues and says, Let us therefore attend to it, attend to this psalm, that thus armed by this psalm, we may be enabled to resist the tempter, the devil, not presuming in ourselves, but in him, in Christ, who before us was tempted by the devil using a verse from the psalm that we might not be overcome when tempted. This psalm is 16 verse. Verse 1 and 2, the assurance of God's protection. 3 to 10, the godly man's safety. 11 to 13, the servants of God and 14 to 16, the promise of God's salvation. So let's start from verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The first verse contains a remarkable promise in which the Holy Spirit assures us that the divine assistance will never be lacking to those who really put their trust in God. When we put our confidence in God, God will protect us. And it says here, dwell in the secret place of the Most High. What is the secret place? So God has a secret place for his own. And it is a place for us to live in. The secret place doesn't only indicate its perfect security, but also that it is no visible earthly tower, but an invisible fortress, which faith alone can find and enter. So to find the secret place of God, this by faith only. And those who dwell there will abide under the shadow of the Almighty, meaning they will enjoy his protection, his comfort, and his care. Those who abide there, no matter whether they are rich or poor, young or old, will be protected. For God is rich to all that call upon him. And the person who has his thoughts always on God, then this person, we can say about him, dwell in him because all his thoughts all the time in God. 
So this person makes his house with God, sit down in the secret place of God. That's why the first words of this psalm, he who dwells. This liberal promise does not apply to those who put only a certain amount of trust in God. No, but this trust should be continuous, constant and firm, dwelling. The word dwell means my trust in God is continuous, firm and constant. So that man may be said to dwell in God through faith and confidence in him and to carry it about with him like a house. So we carry this faith and the confidence all the time. God's help is not like one of the stronghold of this world to which people fly for a defense and protection. But God's help consists in an invisible and most secret tower that can be found and can be entered only by faith. And I want you to notice that he used words like most high, words like almighty. So these words are significant titles and it chosen carefully to emphasize the power of the sovereign ruler of the world to defend his people. Assuming that Moses is the author in Psalm 90, not in the Psalm, Moses spoke of God as the dwelling place of his people, as we read in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. That's why they say it shared the same spirit, 91, and Psalm 90, that's why he said Moses is the author. The psalmist here in Psalm 91 seems to take that idea further. So he said in Psalm 90, your people dwell in you all in all generations. You are the dwelling place in all generations. Now he is taking this idea that he mentioned in Psalm 90 verse 1, take it into further explanation. And speaking in this dwelling place, there is a central place. And this central place is the secret place. So can you imagine there is like a big house and in this house there is a special room for protection. And describing it, it's complete security. Verse two. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I will trust. So the psalmist begins with a general reflection in verse 1 on the blessedness of trusting God. And inspired by the thought and applies it personally to his own spiritual needs. So verse 1 is a general view. From verse 2 is a personal application. So the psalmist says that he will take this to himself. He will endeavor to secure this blessedness and will thus abide with God. That's why he said, I will say of the Lord, personal application, because he knew that he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Because I know this, now I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge, my fortress, my God in him I will trust. So 
he addressed God as his refuge and will regard him as his fortress. So the one who lives intimately with God knows the greatness of the protection of God. God himself becomes like a mighty refuge and fortress for the believer. This close relationship with God and all the benefits that come from it are of those who know God and who truly trust in him. St. Augustine says, He dwells under the defense of the Most High, who is not proud. Like those who ate, now he speak about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve who ate, that they might become as gods. And they lost the immortality in which they were made. Because they want to be their own defense, their own protection. They said, if we eat, we'll be like God and we can protect ourselves. But when they did this, they lost their immortality. For they chose to dwell under a defense of their own, not under that of the Most High. Thus, they listened to the suggestions of the serpent and despised the precept of God and discovered at last that what God threatened, not what the devil promised, had come to pass in them. God told them, if you eat, you shall surely die. Satan told them, no, you shall surely not die. So at the end they found the threat of God was true, not the promise of the devil. Verse 3, surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the prelous pestilence. Now the psalmist began to describe the providential care of God in detail from verses 3 to verse 10. Believers will be kept from those harms and malice which they are in near close danger of and which would be fatal to them. So he said from the snare of the fowler. What are the snares of the fowler? The snare are laid unseen and catches the unaware prey or the victim on a sudden. That is the snare. And from the prelious pestilence, which sees men unexpectedly, and against which there is no guard. But spiritually speaking, man is protected by divine grace from the temptation of Satan. That is the snare of the fowler, temptation of Satan. And according to St. Augustine and St. Jerome, the prelious pestilence is translated harsh word harsh word. And St. Augustine says, deliverance from the hunter's net is indeed a great blessing. But how is deliverance from a harsh word so? What did he mean by he will deliver you from the harsh word? So St. Augustine says, many have fallen into the hunter's net through a harsh word. When people actually say a harsh word to us, Sometimes we become angry, we lose our peace, and we fall into the hunter's snare. Which is it that I say? The devil and his angels spread their snares as hunters do. And those who walk in Christ trade afar from those snares. 
For he dares not, Satan dares not spread his net in Christ. He sets it on the verge of the way, not in the way. Let then your way be Christ, and you will not fall into the snares of the devil. So St. Augustine is saying, that is the way of Christ. He is the way. I am the way. Satan will never put his snares in the way, but he will put it on the verge of the way. So as long as you are in the way, you will be delivered from the snares of the devil. But once you step outside the way, Christ, then Satan will catch you. And Satan's army, the demons, are so numerous. And according to St. Jerome, they are so powerful, so ferocious, as to be compared in the scriptures to lions and dragons. So the demons are compared to lions and dragons. They have no other study but constantly going about roaring, seeking whom they may devour. They are not busy with anything except how to devour us. And the preless pestilence may be literally understood of any fatal disease from which the Lord by his powerful providence sometimes protect his people when in danger of it. But spiritually, the pestilence is the disease of sin, the deadly sin that can actually destroy us. And the Lord saves his children from the destructive effects and consequences of sin when he died on the cross to save us. Verse 4, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. So God represented here in verse 4 like a bird, sheltering young chicks under his wings. According to St. John Chrysostom, this same image of the wings is everywhere in the scripture, in the prophets, in the Song of Moses, the book of Psalms, indicating the great protection and care of God. And St. Augustine says, if the hen defends her chicks beneath her wings, how much more shall you be safe beneath the wings of God? Even against the devil and his angels, the powers who fly about in mid-air like hawks to carry off the weak young one. So the verse tells us of the continuation and persistence of divine protection. God will continuously protect us. When one is young, cannot defend himself, and weaker than his enemies, God will cover us with his feathers, and under his wing we will take refuge in him, as the eagle or the hen protect her young. But when we are grown, when we are spiritually mature and able to fight, God shall be your shield and buckler. So the first part of verse 4, about when we are babes in Christ, then he shall cover us with his feathers, and under his wing we'll take refuge. But when we grow, and we know how to fight, then his truth will be our shield and our buckler, which means God will protect us all the time, all the time. God's promise would be unto them as a shield of the soldier in him in battle. 
thought that the shield got the promise. The son himself is the truth because he said, I am the way, the truth, in John chapter 14, verse 6. So when he said, his truth shall be your shield, then the son himself will be our shield and buckler. He protect us, the son, because his blood and salvation are the shield and buckler all around the scenes to protect us from any harm. Some father said about the wings, they are the two testament or the mercy and justice of God. Some said these are the arms of Christ extended on the cross to shelter the nation from the consequences of sin and from the dreadful birds, Satan and the demons who are hovering in the air. The truth is the Son and also the Word of God. Every promise in the Word of God, every doctrine is a shield and buckler to strengthen and to secure uh, the faith of the people. As we read in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is shield to those who put their trust in him. Verse 5, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day. So, neither sudden assault of enemies by night, nor open attacks by day, shall have power to harm those who trust in God. Night means something subtle. Day, open attack. So having God as our shelter and our refuge gives strength and courage to us. God will not only keep us from evil, but from the fear of evil. You shall not be afraid of the terror. So God will not protect only from the terror, but from the fear of the terror. When God's people are stuck deep in fear, it is an indication that they fall short of proper trust in God as protector. Many people, when they hear about any hardship or any terror, they become afraid. But those who trust in God, they will not be fearful. Terror by night means unexpected attack of the enemy by night while people are asleep. So the psalmist represented all kinds of destruction that could come in all kinds of circumstances. He said by night, by day, darkness, or at noonday as we read in verse 6. Nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. So he covered everything, night, day, darkness, noonday. Also, it could come as terror at night, or arrow in the day, or pestilence at darkness, or destruction at noonday. Whenever or however it comes, God is able to defend his people. St. Augustine says, the sins in night are those of ignorance. Doesn't mean sins committed by night, but he means the sins of the night are the sins of ignorance. Any sin committed by ignorance considered sin of night, not literally committed by night. And those in day means the conscious and willful sins. That's why about the day they spoke of in more forcible terms. 
Walked in darkness in verse 6, not that it particularly come in night, but that is where one cannot mark its progress or anticipate when or whom it will strike. So sometimes there is a sin we don't know its progress or how it will strike. Meaning that because darkness I cannot see. So the laws of its movement are unknown. It comes upon people as an enemy that suddenly attack us at night. But God confirms that his eyes are on those who fear him all year long. My eye watch over you from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And that his care would not cease day and night. So the adversary would use any chance to destroy the children of God. He would terrorize them by night, aim his arrows at them by day, send pestilence in darkness and destruction at noonday. You can see here how the devil trying to destroy the children of God by any means at any time. Some father says the four expression may also be taken of the varying methods of the persecution against the church. So Satan used different type of persecution. For example, the imperfect Christian or the babes in Christ, he used threats and persuasion, try to persuade them or threaten them. Because he knows these people are easily diverted from the faith by fear if he threaten them. And also by persuasion because they don't know thoroughly the gravity of such a fall. But those who are mature, Satan will persecute them by actual violence. He used this against fully mature Christians. Verse 7, A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. So the psalmist follows up the description of the victory of the just man who trusts in God and makes proper use also of the shield of truth. Whatever it be shall not touch him and he will be protected from it. For in this fight, thousand will fall at my side, ten thousand at the right hand, but it shall not come near to you. So although a thousand or even ten thousand shall fall beside the believer in battle or through pestilence, yet it shall not come near the believer. In other words, no matter how many fall around those who trust in God, on the right hand or on the left, they will have nothing to fear. The children of God will have nothing to fear. But I want you to notice here in verse 7, he did not say left and right, but he said thousand may fall at your side, not at your left side. And then he said and ten thousand at your right hand. This made some fathers start to think why we did not find left hand and right hand only why they said your side some say the left hand indicate the mere human power of resistance or our free will and is unworthy to be named or mentioned but the right hand refers to the grace of god which guards us the lord is at your right hand so the just man has mystically two right sides and none given over to evil 
which is a left term denotes, which means my power, left my power. So either it is literally my left or my right, these two sides are protected by the grace of God. So in a mystical way, on the right side, by grace of God, so that's my right. And on my left side, it's by the grace of God, so that's my right. So when we say the Lord is at your right side, that means the Lord exists here and not exists here. He actually surrounds me, so I have two rights. And this notion is enforced by Eusebius, who explained the psalm about Christ, Psalm 91, and said that the word left is purposely omitted, lest we should suppose any defect to exist in Christ. So if we say left, and left means mere human power or sin or evil, then that's why the word left was omitted. So not only will no single one of all those hosts of enemy be able to reach those who trust in Christ, but the believers will see the total overthrow of the enemies while God himself fight for them. That's what we read in verse 8. Only with your eye you shall look and see the reward of the wicked. So by our eyes we will see the reward of the wicked. So God's people, they did not only have been promised a victory, but also they will see their enemies punished according to their deeds. A promise that sometimes fulfilled even in this world, not in the judgment day. For example, the children of Israel saw the Egyptians cast dead on the shores of the Red Sea. As we read in Exodus 14, verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Also, Moses and Aaron saw Dathan and Abiram swallowed up alive, who desired the priesthood. Hezekiah saw the powerless bodies of Sanharib's army. But we should know here that the righteous will not look upon it with pleasure, rejoicing in their misery. No. But it is a manifestation of the glory of the divine justice displayed in it. The righteous also shall see and fear. But this promise will be completely fulfilled, the promise to see the punishment of the, or the reward of the wicked, will be completely fulfilled on the day of judgment, when we shall see all God's enemies given to eternal punishment. St. Augustine says, All that is wanting is the eye of faith, by which we may see that they are raised, the enemies of God, they are raised for a time only, while they shall mourn forevermore in eternity. And to those into whose hand is given temporal power over the servants of God, like Neron, Tiklidianus, it shall be said, depart into everlasting fire, be prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 9. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. So here you see a condition, because that's a condition, or if 
you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place, then no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. So these verses include conditional promises. The promises are, in verse 10, No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. But those promises are conditional on, verse 9, making God our refuge and the Most High our dwelling place. So verse 9 assumes that the just man has complied with these two conditions which to make God your refuge and the Most High your dwelling place. Then the promises, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near to you, your dwelling, will apply. However, the conditional nature of the promises serve as a warning that the promises will no longer apply if we dissociate ourselves from God. So when we dissociate ourselves from God, then the promises will not apply. So the psalmist began again to present a renewed assurance of divine protection confirmed by a divine promise. The first part of verse 9 is a voice of God's people speaking to God. Second part, the words of the psalms. I want you to notice here how he switched because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most I, your dwelling place. بالعربي لأنك قلت أنت يا رب ملجأي. The people they say to God, you are my refuge. And then the psalmist said, you have made the most high your dwelling place. So there is a switch here. The people say, God is my refuge. Then the second part of verse 9, the psalmist is speaking to the people of God, the Most High, your dwelling place. The character of those who shall have the benefit and comfort of these promises, they are such as make the Most High their dwelling place. So they dwell in God. They are continually with God and rest in Him. And some interpret these words of the psalmist himself who had made God his refuge or his defense as if the author of the psalm is sharing his own feeling, his own experience. So as if he's saying, because I made God my refuge, and God actually delivered me, and his promises were fulfilled. So he's using this as in ground of encouragement to others. If you do the same, you will have the same experience that I have with God. St. Augustine says, he has now come to the power. Jesus has now come to the power which rescues the believer from falling by the downfall and the devil of the noonday. For you, God, Lord, are my hope. You have set your house of defense very high. The previous promises from verse 5 to 8 of security and safety, even in the time of plagues are repeated in verse 9 and 10, which mean whatever happens to them, nothing shall hurt them. But many people would say, we don't see this fulfilled on earth. For example, many godly and believers during the time of plague of COVID died. 
So how can we understand these verses and these promises? So this is not regarded as an absolute promise for every believer in every circumstance because beloved people of God have fallen to evil and died in plagues. Though trouble or affliction befall them, many martyrs were killed. Yet there shall be no real evil in it, for it shall come from the love of God. God will turn everything for their best at the end. If people were tempted to fall in sin but repented, actually it shall come not for their hurt but for their good. For example, David. David, we know that the evil of sin did happen to him in the most grievous way. He committed adultery and he killed. And heavy plagues were inflicted on him and on his house because of his sin. So how this promise can have been fulfilled in David's case or in that of the countless other servants of God who have fallen into sins? The answer is that the promise belongs to the next world, not to this world, like in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the fathers tells us that although sins are not promised absolute immunity from sin or from plagues in this world, yet by divine providence, their very sins are turned into agencies for their good. How come? To make them humble, more watchful, more pierced with the love of God. We can see big transformation in the life of David after he fell into these two grievous sins. St. Paul, because of the thorn of the flesh, he was humble and he said, lest I be exalted from the plenty of the visions, God allowed the devil to hit me with the thorn of the flesh in order to keep me humble. So the people of God, they will realize and confess that they owe so very much to the grace and mercy of God. That the affliction of temporal punishment even is hardly felt by them because they dwell in the tabernacle of devout and repentant contemplation and accept his fatherly chastisement. Or even if plagues came from the envy of the devil, they will endure it because they are looking at the reward in heaven. Verse 11, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Verse 11 describes another way God may send his protection and care unto his people. Through his angels, he will command them to keep you, bear you up. Angels are ministering spirits to God's people, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. So the faithful is under their constant care, who guide us and direct us perpetually. So this is precious promise, which offers comfort to God's people. And the word to charge, he charge his angel. Charge means he will give command to his angel. Charge is an order, a firm, strict command, more than just a simple, plain command. Scholar origin observe, each one of us, even the least in the church of God, has beside him a good angel, the guardian angel, an angel of the rule, to rule, 
to move, to direct him, and who to amend our doings, and to ask for mercies on our behalf before God, daily sees the faith of our Father which is in heaven. And he said, to keep you in all your ways, in all your ways. Those that go out of that way put themselves out of God's protection. So, as long as I am in the way, I am protected. But if I go out of the way, I am not in the protection of God. St. Basil the Great says, The angel of the Lord will encamp round about each believer in the Lord, unless we put him to flight by our evil deeds. For as smoke drives bees away, and a bad fitted smell banishes doves, so lamentable and fitted sin repels the angels of our life. And according to our Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us have a guardian angel. For he says in Matthew 18 verse 10, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in him. Satan made a crafty use of this promise when he tempted our Lord Jesus Christ and used it wrongly because it was used and intended to deceive. He used verse 11 and 12. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. St. Augustine comments on this and says, By Christ's temptation, the Christian might be taught. What then is written? You shall not tempt the Lord your God. This was the response of our Lord Jesus Christ to the devil. Let us not then tempt the Lord, so as to say, if we belong to you, let us work a miracle. That's tempting the Lord. Angels have many duties. They remove obstacles out of our way. For example, Exodus 33 verse 2, I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Prezites and the Hivites and Jebusites. Another duty, the is our trial. Like in Daniel chapter 3 verse 49, the angel of the Lord descended with Azariah and his companions into the furnace, and he cast the flame of the fire out of the furnace. Another duty, they help us against visible enemies. The angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrian 185,000. Isaiah 37 verse 36. Another duty, in Tobit chapter 12 verse 12, they present our prayers and alms before God. I offered your prayer to the Lord. In Tobit chapter 5 verse 21, Another duty, they guide us in the way. May his angel accompany you. Also, they guard us from sin. As we read in Genesis 19:15. the angel urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. Verse 12, In their hand they shall bear you up, which symbolizes both their great ability and their great affection, as if they embrace us. It signifies the strength and the powers of the angels to carry the saints 
in their hands and their tender care of them. Lest you dash your foot against a stone, lest they stumble and fall into sin and into trouble. Stone may mean all the obstacles that we meet in our life, either temporal or spiritual. St. Augustine says, our feet are two affections, fear and love. So our feet are these two emotions, fear and love. And whenever man proceeds in his actions, words or desires, he is carried by one or the other, by the desire of acquiring one thing or losing something else, or by the desire of avoiding evil or fear of falling into it. We then knock our feet against the stone when we fall into sin, on an occasion offering of acquiring some temporal good or of avoiding some temporal evil, whence we lose eternal happiness and incur eternal punishment. So he's saying the two feet are two affections. For example, when in our action or word or deeds, usually you are careful either to acquire something or we are afraid to lose something. So we need to acquire righteousness and avoid evil, but also we are afraid to fall of sin. I want to acquire purity, but I am afraid to fall into lust. I want to acquire honesty, but I am afraid to fall into dishonesty, and so on. So the angels will protect us lest our feet dash against the stone. So when my feet dash against the stone, that's when I fall into sin. Fall into sin, sometimes we are tempted to acquire a temporal good, so I lie or I become dishonest, or avoiding some temporal evil. When we dash our feet against the stone, then we lose eternal happiness and we incur eternal punishment. St. Augustine continues and says, But they who dwell in the aid of the Most High are so assisted by the guardian angel that the occasion altogether is removed. So the possibility that your feet dash against the stone is removed. So the stone is taken out of the way or the mind is so enlightened as to distinguish good from evil that the feet, that is the affection, are so raised from the earth that the temporal advantage that could not be had without sin is easily despised. For example, if I have a desire to gain more money and there is opportunity to take money with dishonesty, this actually will be completely the stone, the opportunity to do this will be completely removed from the way. So I will not be tempted by this sin or I'll be so enlightened to distinguish good from evil that the feet, that is, the feet, that the affection are so raised from the earth that the temporal advantage that could not be had without sin is easily despised. So I can easily despise this temporal earthly advantage. And the temporal evil that could not be avoided without sin is patiently endured. So the protection of God to his people extends beyond the general deliverance from the harm itself. 
but also it speaks of the general granting victory to his people, even over opponent as strong as young lion and the cobra. So the protection of God, not only to protect me from the evil and removed from my way, but to give me victory over the opponents. As we read in verse 13, you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Defeated armies bow down before their conquerors, who to mark the completeness of subjection, placed a foot upon them as a sign of subjection. You tread upon, under your feet, you will crush upon the dragon and the serpent and the lion. From this practice, the metaphor of trading underfoot for conquering became known and common. This practice was in the army. The lion represents all open and violent enemies. On the other side, the cobra represents all secret and evil ones. St. Augustine says, the lion openly rages, the dragon lies secretly in, in cover. The devil has each of these forces and powers. When the martyrs were being slain, it was a raging lion. When heretics are plotting, it is the dragon creeping beneath us. Having made mention of the good angels who have a charge of the just man that trusts in God, he now points to the bad angels, the demons, and says that they are far from harming the just man and that he, on contrary, will trample on and crush them. As St. Paul said in Romans 16, 20, and the God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. God's people will be safe among dangers, as if the rage of the lion were restrained and he became like a lamb that happened literally with Daniel, and as if the venomous tooth of the servant were removed this happened literally with St. Paul, as we read in Acts chapter 28. Also, Christ has broken the serpent's head, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And Jesus Christ gave us the same promise. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpent and scorpion and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. This is not the only passage in which the devil is called a serpent and lion, but Peter called the devil a roaring lion in book of Revelation, the old serpent and the red dragon. Verse 14, Because he has set his love upon me, Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. So the conclusion, the last three verses of this psalm come as a divine confirmation of the psalmist expression of confidence. So in verse 14, God himself is speaking by the mouth of the psalmist, makes promises and counts up the blessing he has in store for his faithful servant who love him. He speaks specifically over those who set their love upon him. Set his love means and indicates the strength 
of our affection to God and its sincerity. God is speaking about those who attach themselves to him, bind themselves to him, love him, take delight in him. So God will deliver those people. The deliverance here promised may be said to mean deliverance from the domination, the power, and the authority of sin. So sin will have no power over us. As we read in John chapter 8, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. This freedom is not granted to everybody, but to those that hope in God and those who set their love upon him. The Lord also said, I will set him on high. In Hebrew means to raise him, to exalt him, or to defend him. So God here is promising to exalt the person who knows his name. We cannot fully know God's name and God's nature. He is incomprehensible. But it is an intimate kind of knowledge that goes beyond our intellectual knowledge to heart knowledge. So its experience cannot be uttered having a real relationship with God. Knowing God as shepherd, friend, father, groom, this knowledge of which the gospel speaks, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. So God is promising to bless the person who know him in this intimate way. God promises are to such as call upon him by prayer. For he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. He shall call upon me. You cannot say, I love God without praying. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. He shall call upon me implies a fervent desire springing from confidence and love. And God promises to answer the prayer of the one who loves him and the one who genuinely knows him. God is to be called upon in every time of trouble and in faith and with fervency in truth and uprightness in sincerity of the soul. How could any be heard that did not call. If I did not call, how I expect God to hear me? Or how could he call if he did not know the name of God? That's why start by loving him, knowing my name. So through this intimate relation, I know him. Then I will call upon him. Then God will answer me. God spoke personal and wonderful blessing over the one who loves and knows him. And the blessing of his presence I will be with him in trouble. And the blessing of the protection, I will deliver him. And the blessing of promotion, I will honor him. So three blessings. God will be with us. God will protect us. God will promote us. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and I will honor him. I will be with him in trouble. And trouble makes us understand that However great the consolation bestowed by God upon his people, they are not without tribulation. The fact God said, I will be with him in trouble, this means even the children of God will go into trouble. But while they are in trouble, God will be with them. St. Augustine says, Fear not when you are in trouble. God is with you in your trouble. Christ slept in the ship. 
while the men, the disciples, were perishing. If your faith sleep in your heart, Christ is as it were sleeping in your ship. Because Christ dwells in you through faith. When you begin to be tossed, awake Christ is sleeping. Rouse up your faith and you shall be assured that he deserts you not. So he's saying if your faith starts to be asleep, it's like Christ is sleeping in your ship of your life. So what the disciples did, they awake Christ. When my faith is sleeping, let me awake my faith. And then I will find Christ with me and he is not deserting me. The last verse, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. With long life, I will satisfy him. That's another blessing, the blessing of prosperity. So, blessing of God's presence with us, blessing of deliverance, blessing of promotion, and here blessing of prosperity. Another blessing, and show him my salvation, that's a blessing of preservation. So, in these last verses, God promised us five blessings. Length of days is always viewed in the Old Testament as a blessing. But it is only in the New Testament that we learn how much better it is to depart and be with Christ. This is far better. So, according to St. Augustine, the promise of length of days is the eternal life that has no end. And according to him, also show him my salvation means I will show him Christ himself. So St. Augustine said, I will show him my salvation, I will show him Christ. St. Augustine says, we see Christ through faith, not by sight. When will it be sight? When we will see him by our eyes? When shall we, as the apostle says, see him face to face, which God promises us as the high reward of all our toils. So when we go to heaven, we'll see him face to face. Whatever you toil in, you toil for this purpose, that you may see him in eternal life face to face. Here we see him in faith, but in eternal life, we'll see him face to faith. So I will give him long days in eternal life. I will show him my salvation. So I will show him Christ himself in eternal life. This actually concludes Psalm 91. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.